New technology can come from nowhere and change the world, whether it's vaccines, the jet plane or the internet. But what might society's next big game changer be? From optimising healthcare with AI to using quantum computing algorithms to predict the next financial crash. It's all here in our podcast series, Rebuilding America. I'm Stephen Horn, CEO of Web's Edge, where we connect issues and audiences, and you're listening to On The Edge. In this, our final episode of the Rebuilding America series, we're spreading the net wide as we speak to researchers from all around the world. Our guests on this show are at the very cutting edge of new technology that could provide solutions to some of our biggest problems. From Spain, Roman Aura, CSO at Multiverse Computing, talks us through how quantum computing might be used in the finance industry. Finance is just full of uh, very interesting mathematical and intractable problems, and, and that's the perfect test bed for quantum computing. From Arizona, Professor Kevin Gurney, lead scientist on the Vulcan project, explains how his team is localizing climate change information. We make very visual representations of the landscape. It kind of looks just like anything you see in Google Maps or any sort of mapping app where you see the infrastructure of your city and all the CO2 emissions. But first, artificial intelligence is creating exciting new opportunities for forward-thinking enterprises in every industry. To start the show, I'm joined by Professor Dean Ho, Director of Wisdom at the National University of Singapore's Yong Lu Lin School of Medicine, to discuss its AI-driven technology platforms and the potential they hold to transform healthcare in the future. Well, Dave, first of all, thanks ever so much indeed for taking the time. Really appreciate uh, you doing that today. So thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. AI and uh, medicine. A lot of people are talking about how AI can help both optimizing and personalizing uh, yeah, medical uh, care. What do you think fundamentally are some of the medical challenges that AI can help with? I think some of the major challenges right now are that it's in two segments. One, when we think about treatment, we think about developing new therapies and better therapies. And then the second part is how do we administer those therapies? And I think that right now, for sure, it's it's very expensive to develop new therapies. And it's expensive because the success rates are very low. Um, And a lot of the therapies that we use, especially for things like cancer, combination therapy is a cornerstone, putting different drugs together. And the process of optimizing how we combine those drugs is very challenging. And it contributes to why success rates are so low. And when these success rates are so low and development is so expensive, it can create issues of accessibility, certainly cost, et cetera. And then when we think about how these therapies are administered, we hear a lot about precision medicine personalized medicine. I think one of the major challenges is we have to make precision or personalized medicine more accessible. And uh, we also have to better define what those terms mean. Um, And I think today we're going to talk about how we view personalized medicine as what we call N of one healthcare, which is instead of using large amounts of information to treat an individual, we use only an individual's own data to manage only their own care. So we don't take population-wide information. 
to treat everybody. We, we truly keep it individualized. Tell us a little bit about the Wisdom Center at uh, NUS, because it, it, it sounds fascinating to, to me. So just give us a little bit of a glimpse of, uh, of what you guys do. Sure. The Institute for Digital Medicine, as we also refer to as Wisdom, is based out of the Yonglu Lin School of Medicine at the National University of Singapore. And it's quite a unique institute because we certainly have tech developers. We, we harness digital medicine to do everything from optimize and personalize cancer treatment all the way to digital therapeutics, where we're instead of using a pill, we are using apps and software as the treatment for everything from potentially mild cognitive impairment um, all the way to uh, looking at multitasking training and personalized learning. But the core ethos of wisdom is that technology alone cannot transform healthcare. And so due to that, we have tech developers, we have clinicians. And when we refer to clinicians, we refer to the whole spectrum, from doctors to nurses to allied health slash pharmacists uh, to behavioral scientists to help us better understand how to better connect with our users to make sure we sustain the deployment of these platforms. We have healthcare economists, so we understand how to sustain the financing of these platforms and healthcare systems. And in fact, our very first hire in Wisdom, uh, a wonderful gentleman by the name of Johan Sapinel, who has a background in both med tech, but is from the insurance industry, in fact. So <laughs> everything we do is developed with the mindset of deployment. So we know what criteria we have to meet to make sure that our tech makes it out into the field. So let's, let's move on to some of the specific programs that uh, you run. And you talked earlier about uh, uh, combining medicines and the challenge that that faces. And anybody who's either been in in hospital or has friends or relatives who've been in hospital will know exactly what you're what you're talking about and how how, how tricky that is. And, and I believe that the program you you call Identify. Can you run us through Identify and how you're facing up to that challenge? Absolutely. So when we think about combining medicines, this is a an approach that's used for everything from managing high blood pressure all the way to infectious diseases. And we saw that with COVID-19 and we're still seeing right. it with COVID-19 all the way to oncology uh, and beyond. And here's the challenge. When we traditionally develop combinations, we pick the drugs we think we're going to need. We combine them based on what mechanisms we think they'll act on in the body. And then we search for a dose. And oftentimes, we search for the highest dose you can possibly give. That's traditional medicine. What's completely overlooked is the fact that beyond picking the dose, picking the drugs and looking for a dose, we have to realize that the dose can also pick the drug, which means if we optimize which therapies go into a good combination and the dosage of those respective therapies, a truly optimal combination may be comprised of therapies we would have never expected. And so we applied this via a platform known as Identify to develop and rapidly realize novel combination therapies for the coronavirus. What was really interesting is we teamed up with a group of clinicians, a collaborations essential, so clinicians from around the world, to suggest a pool of potential regimens uh, against COVID-19. And we ran this Identify platform. And here's the interesting part. Identify was originally discovered using artificial intelligence this amazing and very powerful relationship between how do we combine drugs? How do we optimize treatment outcomes? But it's so powerful now that we actually don't even need AI anymore. And what we do is taking this big pool of therapies, which represents hundreds of thousands of different combinations. Within a few weeks, we can use experiments to derive and effectively crowdsource the virus to tell us 
what are the best therapies to combine at which respective dose? And the beauty of this is our results aligned very well with, which, with the clinical trials that were being run. And so this is the ultimate benefit. We can certainly recommend optimal therapies for clinicians to provide to patients, but we can also recommend therapies for clinicians to potentially avoid giving patients. And so time is essential when addressing uh, aggressive infectious diseases. And so Identify made it possible to quickly derive answers. And again, we don't use pre-existing data. We don't feed it into algorithms to make predictions. We run real experiments on the live virus and an optimization approach to quickly come up with the right answers. That's absolutely uh, that's absolutely fascinating. Can you give us a little bit of a, a taste from that as to some of the progress that you you did make with uh, COVID nineteen? Uh, that's a great question. So uh, we completed the study, and what we what we realized was this very pu- it's a publicly accessible database. It's at a, it's at a, a website of one of my other institutes that I direct, known as N one n1labs.org. It's a publicly open database where there's approximately 10,000 possible combinations ranked from best all the way to worst. And so what a clinician can do is say, hey, look, I've got these therapies from this pool of therapies. What's the best combination of two drugs that I can give or the best combination of three drugs? If a clinician says, I've got a patient who has a liver problem, so I cannot give this particular drug. If I pull it out, what other options can I get that are still potent, right? And so when this database came out, what was amazing was this kind of global collaborative effort uh, due to the open source of our results. And, and we open access all of our publications so anybody can see them. And so what they were doing was asking us for recommendations on A, which therapies uh, we, they should run trials on. And we were actually able to get uh, some clinical protocols approved with uh, an international partner. And then uh, what we were also able to do was to help them determine perhaps which regimens they should skip so that patients aren't given regimens that actually are are not going to benefit them. Sure. Uh, There were there were drug companies that were interested in running trials, but needed guidance on what combinations containing their therapy might be best. And so what was great was to see this international effort from industry, from academia, from hospitals coming to us to ask for some recommendations on what to do next. Because with COVID, what you've seen from you know from a, 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 a layman's point of view is some some well known drugs, if you like, some well known therapies that were never designed or created for for COVID. But as you say, if you combine some of those, they they have given very effective treatments, have they not? That's correct, and this is one of the major challenges when outbreaks emerge. When outbreaks emerge, no, it's hard to prepare. So there really are no therapies usually that are built just for that particular pathogen, right? And so what you have to do is repurpose. Take therapies that were approved for something else and put them in action. But the chances of a repurposed drug being effective on its own, it's possible. Absolutely. And we're seeing some good examples of that. But a drug being effective and a drug being optimally used are two completely different outcomes. And so what we're finding is that, and this is one of the biggest challenges in drug development, when a therapy is ineffective on its own, it is largely discarded, right? Right. But here's the problem. What we find is that these therapies that are ineffective on their own, when they are combined properly with other drugs and all of these drugs at the right respective dose, there are profound increases in efficacy that can be realized. And these ineffective therapies become key drivers of optimal treatment. 
this is an area where digital medicine can rapidly make impact. Fascinating. So can, can you have another uh, look at one of the other uh, programs that uh, you're involved with? Sure. Create AI. Tell us about Create AI. Yes. So Curate is a platform where after a regimen is decided or designed or um, after uh, or if a clinician approaches us and says they have a patient and the regimen's already decided, we have to find a way to optimally dose, cure, uh, opt- optimally dose with Curate AI that regimen. And so I'm going to give you an example of a case where it's worked really well. In oncology, what happens is patients are often given a first line of treatment, and if it doesn't work or it fails, they go to a second line, third line, and they eventually will either run out of options and go to hospice care or they find a clinical trial. We had a patient come in and was mildly responsive to treatment, but it was quite toxic for an advanced solid cancer. And what we were able to do was to obtain the data of how this patient responded to different doses of the same drugs. And with Curate, we were able to take this very small amount of data, and again, only this patient's own data, and demonstrate that if you drop the dose by about 50% of one of the drugs, the efficacy would go up. Imagine a person getting toxic combination therapy and you drop the dose and the efficacy actually improves. And this was shocking to the clinical team because in traditional oncology, it's give the highest dose of multiple drugs until they respond or they don't, or they never respond. But here's the thing, patients that don't respond at a certain dose, it doesn't necessarily mean that they cannot respond. It's about titrating in a very rational and directed fashion. That's what Curate does. Fascinating. So, so, so what else are you working on? So another exciting area we're looking at is the field of digital therapeutics. And digital therapeutics does not use pills or pharmacologic intervention. It's using apps and, uh, and software as the intervention. And so what we have here is essentially a multitasking game on a tablet. And instead of dynamically changing the dosage, we are dynamically changing the difficulty of the gaming experience. And with that, what we're looking to do is to try to optimize the cognitive performance and personalize that performance with those who are interacting with the game. And what we find, just like drug treatment, is that we all know everybody's different from each other, but we are different from ourselves over time. So this process adapts dynamically to where we're able to learn that some people on one day will have the best performance under high difficulty gaming. But on another day, they might need a lower one or a medium one. And so we dynamically evolve alongside their cognitive training to optimize and personalize the process. And what's exciting for us is we have an approved clinical study, a trial to uh, use this with patients who've had whole brain radiation, so brain cancer patients, uh, to help improve cognitive function. And we also are setting up a study to work on this with the seniors community to help sustain and optimize cognitive performance in that community as well. And uh, it's been a very rewarding experience working with wonderful clinicians, patient advocacy, um, and, uh, and that's part of what accelerates our work out into the community. It's all fascinating stuff. I've got one final question for you, which, uh, which uh, you know, we part of our series here. We've been looking at, uh, 
you know how to make things better for the future for uh, you know society in 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 general and and i guess my question is this is that you you're doing some great uh, things and we could all see the, the 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 benefits of those how do you ensure that the rollout of personalized uh, precision medicine like this is equitable how do we make sure that uh, that all citizens, you know, however rich or poor, you know, uh, wherever they are in the world can, can, can access these treatments? That's a wonderful question. And that is a main driver of what we do. Um, and so for, for the Institute for Digital Medicine, um, as well as coming from a university, accessibility is a major driver of what we do. Uh, it, it's also part of our ethos as well. And the way to do that is by the very nature of the the expertise that comprises our team, right? It's not just the tech, uh, not just the technology. It's uh, we need behavioral scientists, we need healthcare economists. We work with the business school, uh, but not not just in entrepreneurship, but also in areas like operations, analytics, implementation sciences, and and we we do this to ensure that our work is accessible. And to take it another step further, what's really exciting is, as I mentioned earlier, our platforms are actionable enough where we don't even use AI in many of the cases or sometimes in all of the cases. And so we don't require big data to drive these algorithms. What we do is we prospectively calibrate every patient and use their own information to guide that care. And so when this happens, this, this really increases the accessibility of what we do because the way we get that data may involve maybe just a couple extra blood draws, right? right? It may include just a couple of extra consultations. Sometimes existing standards of treatment have yielded enough data for us, small data, to empower this optimal care. We're not using complex computation, complex mechanistic analysis to do what we do. And so what we've seen already is in working closely with the clinical community and by also openly communicating our results to as many different fields as possible, we're able to also draw in the expertise to help us deploy, to help us scale, and to help us consider these issues of equity, accessibility early on. And that's what makes Wisdom a very special place. Well, thanks ever so much. Uh, that was really great. We really appreciate uh, the time. Could talk to you all day on that, but I'm sure you've got other things to do. So thanks again. That was really great. Thanks so much for having me. From AI to quantum computing now, many institutions and companies are preparing for a quantum-driven future. Multiverse Computing CSO Roman Oris is at the front of this wave and joins me now. Roman, thanks again for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. We we really appreciate you uh, doing that. Nice to see a, a blackboard behind you as well. Yeah, thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to uh, to be here uh, together with my blackboard. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Roman, can we start at the beginning? So, there's a, a a lot of buzzwords, you know, around uh, all the time these days, and a lot of people talk about quantum computing. But but can we start off? Can you tell us what quantum computing is? Yeah, so quantum computing is uh, a new model for doing computation. Essentially, it's uh, long story short, quantum computing is about uh, processing information with uh, with quantum systems. So, 
So one needs to be a little bit step by step here. So quantum systems are things such as atoms, molecules, okay? These are the fundamental constituents of, of nature, all right? Uh, these are the tiny elements that everything is made of, all right? And, uh, and you know, physicists uh, at the beginning of the last century, uh, they already realized that uh, the laws that uh, rule this type of systems, they are not the standard laws that we see in the usual world. Uh, they are the laws of quantum mechanics, all right? And then around 1980s uh, and so on, they realized also that you can use these laws to codify information in these fundamental pieces of nature, in atoms, in molecules, okay, in fundamental particles, and so on. So quantum computing is about building a computer with these entities. So codifying the information, okay, in uh, quantum systems, and you know, um, use uh, the laws of quantum mechanics to process information at this level. And in this way, you can do things that otherwise would be simply impossible or very hard to to do with uh, standard computers. So what what can you do? What's the difference then between quantum computing and let's call it standard computing? Yeah, well, you have a, an enormous power in order to process information. So nature is quantum, okay? And, and at the end of the day, the ultimate limit of computation has to be given by nature itself. So it means it has to be given by quantum mechanics because it's, uh, it's the best description of nature that we have. And of course, it means that with a quantum computer, you can solve uh, problems that uh, are uh, impossible directly or, di or intractable for, for, a, for a standard computer. Okay? Yeah. A very good example is, is the problem of factorization. So when you have uh, a, an integer number and you want to decompose it into, into primes, say you say 15 is equal to 3 times 5, 21 is equal to 3 times 7, and so on and so forth. So this is easy for if the number is small, but if I give you a number with 700 digits, for instance, this is going to take you using all the computational power that we have nowadays uh, in the world, the standard one, I mean, uh, several trillion years, okay, which is uh, pretty impractical. So, however, with a quantum computer, you could solve this problem in just a few hours, okay? This is an example of an application, and it has technological implications because this is the type of problem that we use nowadays in cryptography in order to, you know, cipher and uh, codify the information that we transmit through the internet, for instance. It means that if we had a quantum computer, fully working quantum computer, we would be able to crack the current cryptographic systems and we could read all the messages, no? But you can do many more things. You know, currently there are many problems in, in industry and also in, in technology that are simply too hard or too difficult to solve with the standard uh, computation and the solutions that we are finding are, you know, they are the best thing we can get, but, uh, but they are not uh, the best ones you could, you could get, okay? For instance, optimizing um, uh, airport traffic, the traffic of, of airplanes, okay, uh, optimizing portfolios of investments and so on. These are highly complicated mathematical problems that are known to be intractable. And, you know, with a quantum computer, we will be able to find optimal solutions. So how far are we away from having a, a true quantum computer? Well, actually, we do already have some prototypes. Uh, they are small, they are noisy, uh, but they exist already nowadays in real life, so it's no longer science fiction. They are built by companies such as IBM, Google, and D-Wave, uh, you know, IonQ, and so on. Um, we are starting to have the first prototypes, which are small in, in you know, in capacity. They are noisy, okay? And, and we have to understand that nowadays, 
a quantum computer doesn't look like a standard computer. It, it looks more like a, a standard computer in the 1930s that it, you know, it was as big as a whole building. So that's how a quantum computer looks like nowadays. It's a whole physics lab, okay? Now, um, however, we can access already these prototypes. They are on the cloud and they can already be used to do some, some calculation, okay? Well, and the prospects is that this technology is gonna be scaling up and eventually we'll get a bigger and more powerful machine. So, uh, so let's talk a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, about uh, your own work, because because your company works a lot in uh, financial services, doesn't it? So, give us a a little bit of an idea of because uh, it's interesting because you know you talked about it being a uh, physics lab, and a lot of these developments, you know, one might expect to see in a uh, a physics lab. But how does this compute, if you if you like, to financial services that you work in? Yeah, so actually finance is, is one of the first uh, fields of application of quantum computing because finance is, is full of intractable problems, you know, uh, predicting the stock market, for instance, uh, predicting a financial crisis or a financial crash, uh, optimizing the portfolio of a pension fund to maximize the returns uh, the day you retire, okay, uh, detecting fraud when you do a tax declaration. All these type of problems, they are extremely hard computationally. And, and, you know, finance is just full of uh, very interesting mathematical and intractable problems. And, and that's the perfect test bed for quantum computing. So I will say that together with, with pharma and chemistry and probably material science, finance is, is, is one of the first verticals where quantum computing is going to have a deep impact. No? So, of course, quantum computing is going to help financial institutions in many different ways. So essentially, any calculation that financial institutions are doing nowadays with, with the standard uh, numerical algorithms, let's say, or numerical programs, they can all be improved using quantum computers. Yeah, I mean, a lot of what you've been saying so far, most of it, you know, would appear to uh, a layman such as myself to be good news. You know, these are, these are as you say, uh, difficult problems and that uh, computing power, if you like, uh, gives us the chance to uh, to solve those. But is there a, are there some challenges that we need to face? Are there some risks here that uh, the computers, if you like, get so powerful that uh, that uh, they go beyond our uh, ability to regulate or control? Yeah, well, that's a that's a good point that you're raising. So, of course, this is a critical technology, and everything, any critical technology, has to be regulated somehow. Okay, so at this stage, we are still in a very early stage where we are having the first prototypes. All right, uh, but we, uh, it's still a technological challenge to to build uh, bigger and more fo- more powerful machines, but. Uh, I want to be optimistic, and I think that this is going to happen sooner than later. And of course, this means that uh, this technology, it's, I mean, if we can decipher all the cryptographic uh, protocols that we use nowadays, this is, of course, uh, a very powerful technology, and it needs to be regulated. So as far as I understand, there are already some associations that are starting to, you know, uh, take care of how should we regulate this in order to be ethical, okay? or in order that there is no country that steps on top of another one. Yeah, so that's already being discussed because, uh, I mean, as Hillary Clinton said uh, several years ago, she said that, that this was the new Manhattan Project and she was not, uh, she was not wrong, I think. 
the other issue i suppose just uh, following on from uh, that is that does this does this sort of reinforce sort of global inequality if you like i mean that i would imagine that uh, computers like this uh, are not cheap and that uh, does that not put more power in uh, you know in the hands of uh, the, the the developed countries and makes it even harder for uh, uh, maybe less developed countries to catch up yeah there is there is always that risk with technology that's true. Uh, but it's the same risk with all the other parts of technology. Let's say uh, with artificial intelligence, we also have the same, no? But it's true. I mean, this technology is expensive. It's very complicated. You need very big labs. And of course, the developed countries have uh, the capabilities to build uh, the machines before. Okay. But this is why, uh, I mean, uh, in parallel to companies, there are also some uh, public initiatives to make this com- that are trying to build co- quantum computers that are going to be open. Okay, to the public and also to essentially people. Then there are also initiatives in different, uh, let's say, geographic regions. There are, uh, you know, there are companies that are prototypes being built in the U.S., also in Europe, in China, and so on. Because any developed country understands that they need to be uh, in the race. Okay. So my final question would be, if you were looking forward a few years, what, what are some of the, the big mathematical problems uh, sort of in society? You said in, in uh, pharmaceutical, in uh, financial services, you talked about transport. What are some of the big problems that you think uh, quantum will be able to help us with? Well, in finance, for instance, it should be possible to predict more accurately uh, or to forecast more accurately financial crises. Okay, like the one that happened in 2008. So this, this you could see it coming uh, more efficiently. This is also an intractable problem mathematically. There are lots of you know, very complicated equations there. And this is something that with a quantum computer, we would have been able to understand uh, better. Now, in, if we move away from finance, say in, in chemistry and in the pharmaceutical industry, of course, the development of new, new drugs, uh, new vaccines, uh, uh, the simulation of uh, complex molecules in order to build uh, new materials, intelligent materials. Okay, this is going to be a game changer, I think. Well, Robin, thanks ever so much indeed for taking the time to uh, talk us uh, through it. It would take me a huge amount of time just to have done your simple prime numbers. So, uh, so <laughs> I, I very much appreciate you uh, taking us through that. So, thank you very much indeed. Excellent. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Technology Game Changers, that's the subject of this last episode in our Rebuilding America podcast series. And I've got one more game changer before we come to a close. A new greenhouse gas information system called Vulcan. Professor Kevin Gurney's team from Northern Arizona University has developed it and joins me now to explain what the Vulcan project is and how it's making an impact. Well, Kevin, first of all, thanks again for taking the time to uh, talk to us. Really, really appreciate you doing that. Sure, my pleasure. Let, let's kick off. So so a couple of things I'm interested to uh, talk to you about on the outset here is, uh, first of all, you know, climate change, people are clearly and rightly very concerned about uh, climate change, but you don't hear a lot of talk about measuring, you know, about measurement and the data. And uh, why do you think it's really important that we have a, a, a very accurate picture on uh, on data from uh, carbon emissions, etc.? I think the reason that measurement has now emerged after, you know, it's been three or four decades, really, of 
talking about climate change is that I think we're getting more serious about the practical aspects of what we do right. to avoid, you know, impacts from climate change. And the minute you go from that kind of abstract discussion about, gee, it's a problem and we know we need to do things about it. We roughly know why this is happening and what's driving it to the very practical, all right, who does what, when and where? How much is that going to cost? What policy instruments are you going to use? Once you get to that much more practical conversation, it becomes important to then have a much more both detailed and accurate idea of where exactly are emissions, where exactly how much exactly are they, who's responsible for that, and what instruments, policy instruments or policy levers can we use to specifically target those things. And whenever you get into that conversation, you do also have to know what is big and what is small. This difference between big and small is very important because you have to prioritize. We, we can't, at least initially, tackle everything out there in the landscape. It, it's, it's an overwhelming problem in some ways. We have to start with the things that are big and important that we have access to, and then we'll work our way down that sort of tree of emission size, if you will, to the smaller things. But in order to do all of that, we really have to have a good idea of emissions in a much more accurate and detailed way. That kind of brings us nicely on to, you know, the projects that, that you've been working on, Vulcan and Hestia. Can you just explain to us uh, what those are all about? Yeah, initially they were built um, to do carbon cycle science, the thing that I spend most of my time doing, which isn't necessarily aimed at policy, but it's aimed at just understanding the global carbon cycle, which includes the biosphere, the oceans, and of course, human emissions of fossil fuel CO2. So initially we were trying to really do a better job at quantifying human emissions of, of CO2. In the last 20 years, there's been, there's been a few satellites launched that look down at the planet and measure CO2. We've been measuring CO2 um, at the ground for, for many years. And that kind of increase in measurement density, both from satellites and the ground, needed a complement in the way we map, if you will, CO2 emissions. So that's what initially drove us to do the project. And the techniques we used in Vulcan and Hesse, and I'll explain the difference between the two, is really data mining techniques. Um, there's a lot more data, not just on CO2, but on lots of things about infrastructure, traffic, buildings, what type of buildings, what they're doing, where they are, so on and so forth. So much data that we were able to ingest a lot of that and come up with, we think, a much better estimate of CO2 emissions in a lot more detail. And Vulcan was a project that attempted to do this type of thing across the entire U.S. landscape, coast to coast. Now we do it at about a one kilometer spatial resolution or so every hour. And then Hestia, its partner project, dove down into individual cities. We've done about six now where we go into even more detail for, for one urban landscape down to the building level, street segment level, um, across an entire city. And who can make use of this then? What, what kind of policymakers, who, who can use this to make uh, decisions? Well, there's probably two or three different outlets for the information. The, the most obvious is cities, let's say policymakers, mayor offices, sustainability offices that are building climate action plans and need to know 
what their emissions are. Now, some cities do th this themselves. Um, we're kind of arguing that we can do it for them, not that it's not an important thing for them to do, but it's a rather tedious and time-consuming problem that we probably can save them a lot of trouble. So the most obvious outlet is, is for policymakers that are trying to figure out what emissions they want to reduce. And we're arguing that we can give them much more of a scalpel, let's say, as opposed to a blunt mallet sure. in, in tackling emissions. Um, but there's lots of other interested parties. I mean, citizens in general are interested. We make very visual representations of the landscape. It kind of looks just like anything you see in Google Maps or any sort of mapping app where you see buildings, you see your street, you see the infrastructure of your city and all the CO2 emissions. So it's a powerful means to communicate the dimensions of emissions, something that, you know, has been hard for everybody to see. We all intellectually know that it occurs around us through the activities that we engage in, but it's powerful when you can visualize it. Give us an example, because I, I saw some of the work that you were doing in Los Angeles, for example, that, uh, that, that enabled you very much, if you're taking the point you were making before about concentrating on the big stuff, actually enables you to, to, to understand, you know, in that kind of context, what the big stuff actually is. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And we've also been looking at not only what is what, what the large emissions are in various sectors, but how do they intersect with other aspects that might be interesting or useful from a city policymaker's perspective? And I'll give give you an example. In Los Angeles, there's been interest in both, of course, tackling greenhouse gas emissions, but also intersecting them with things like, let's say, low-income housing. So, for example, improving insulation or building envelope insulation in low-income housing as opposed to all housing. And so right. we did an intersection of household income, greenhouse gas emissions, and what you see are actually strong hotspots. And our argument there is that those are the places you want to target if you're going after both of those interests, that the intersection of greenhouse gases with other important aspects of your infrastructure are not always entirely obvious, and it will make it far more efficient um, to have that information be able to target those things you're interested in rather than maybe inefficiently blanketing a landscape with a single policy. Sure, sure. What are you working on next? What's the next stage for you for, for these projects? We're doing a couple things. We're always, of course, improving the underlying infrastructure of what we do. We're certainly trying to make it more usable because, again, since it was originally intended as sort of a scientific research effort, but a lot of people have shown a lot of interest in it. So we're trying to make a dashboard, make something that's more usable, more downloadable, um, give people access to this information in an easier and simpler format. But we're also doing other interesting technical things. For example, we're trying to bring this information into real time. One of the limits of our techniques is that a lot of the data tends to have latency. That latency can vary from a year to even as much as three years. But with some new techniques and some new data that's out there, it looks like we're going to be able to bring this into real time. So we'll not only be able to get all that detail at the surface, but you'll be able to get yesterday's emissions. And in fact, we're even now doing a forecast a three-month forecast of emissions. And so our, our, our vision is that just like you would look, see a weather map, let's say on the evening news or hear a weather report on the radio, 
now you would be able to hear the status of greenhouse gas emissions in your location. And that'll give you a sense of whether or not things are going down, things are going up, are the policies that were enacted having an effect, so and so on. I guess I guess my final question is uh, is this really? You know, we we're coming out, hopefully coming out of this uh, this uh, pandemic, and and one of the things that's been quite striking in 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 many Western countries coming out of the pandemic is is the amount of resource and the amount of focus that uh, you know we've been able to 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 put on this on this huge problem. And a lot of people are saying, okay, if we can put this amount of focus on COVID, you know, how about putting this focus on climate change, right? Because, you know, arguably uh, even bigger, even bigger issue. And, and we often talk about data and the need for uh, uh, data. And data is one of the big drivers in the 21st uh, century. Have you noticed a change of uh, attitude with policymakers and members of the public and people that you deal with now that you can actually pinpoint, uh, you know, with the degree of accuracy that you now can? Did, how, do people, does that change people's view on what can be achieved? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking that this is going to start to change the conversation. This year, with the new administration in the United States, we've certainly had far more interest, outreach, and activity right. on this topic than we ever have had, partly because it's an intersection of both the interests in improving infrastructure. And our argument, of course, is this is data infrastructure. And I think the recognition that the only way we're probably going to realistically make a significant dent, and, and, the, and I want to emphasize the word significant, because we can pass policies that will nibble at the edges of this problem, as really has gone on, you know, probably for the last 20 or 30 years. But to really dig down deep into the type of emission reductions that we know we have to see, things like 50%, 75%, net zero, these are profound cuts in emissions. We're going to need the private sector to be investing. There, there just is no way out of this problem. Governments cannot do this alone. They can begin the process, but we're going to have to have investment and investment in mitigation. And that might mean in the U.S. context, since it's the way we've done a lot of problems, is market style mechanisms. I'm not necessarily um, for or against them. I just know that that's been the mode that the U.S. has used on other environmental problems that we've tackled, air quality, um, acid rain, for example. We've used market techniques, things like cap and trade, where you have the ability to trade credits if you're able to reduce your emissions below some cap, for example. The only way any of those type of mechanisms are going to work is if there's accuracy and trust in what the emission values are. Nobody buys a stock that's valued at $1 plus or minus $5. Right. That's just not a reliable investment. And right now, most of the potential investment, which has been sitting on the sidelines for the past couple of decades, sees the emissions offset marketing world and emissions reduction investment world that way. It doesn't have the type of trust and accuracy that they're going to need if we want significant resources to flow into this space. So our argument also is that this lowers investment risk. And you, you have to do that in order for the private sector to be involved, as we know they have to be. And so I think those conversations and that sort of 
much more practical, realistic conversation about the problem is occurring now in, in ways that I don't think I've ever seen before. Again, it's gone from the kind of abstract, gee, we need to do something to, boy, we absolutely have to do things something about this and we need to know the practical steps we're gonna have to take. Who's gonna do this? What institutions need to be built in order to make this happen? What type of data infrastructure is this gonna look like? Who's gonna own it? Who's gonna distribute it? so on and so forth, these very practical discussions, that's been quite a change. And for me, very heartening, because it means that people are starting to take this problem seriously. We're going to need a lot more of it, and we still have a long road. But I'm, I'm optimistic in the last few months to year that we're, we're getting serious about this problem, at least in the U.S. Kevin, thanks ever so much indeed for uh, for that and for uh, talking to us today. It's really fascinating stuff. So, so, so thank you again. We really do appreciate it. My pleasure, Stephen. I'm afraid that wraps things up for our sixth and final episode of our debut podcast series, Rebuilding America. There's lots to take away and I'm sure plenty more to come in future series as we continue to explore society's most pressing issues. Stand by as we remain on the edge right here at Web's Edge.